So we are in uh, the book of... Oh, very good. Good students. We're in the book of Titus this morning. And if we could stand together, we'll, we'll read... Um, uh, I'll, I'll read the verses for us. We're in the New International Version. Um, I, I used to read in the, in the King James Version because... Uh, in the old King James Version, because I thought I'm old and I'm a king, so maybe I should read that. But now I'm new and international, so. so we'll be reading from the NIV this morning. It won't be on the screens, but we'll read it, read it and hear it in our hearts together, and then afterwards um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have the verses on the screen. So Titus chapter 2, um, verse 1. You, however, speaking to Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, and to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by, by doing what is good. And in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And teach servants to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, attractive. Okay, we are um, studying this inspired pastoral letter, which is so instructive uh, for the church. Um, we remember that Titus is given his commission of Paul. The reason that he was um, left in Crete in verse 5 of chapter 1 was that he might appoint elders in every town as Paul had directed him. Now, back to appointing an elder, we, we remember in verse 9 of chapter 1, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can do two things. Number one, encourage others by sound doctrine, and number two, refute those who oppose it. And of course, the context being that there are false teachers and we studied last week, verses 10 to 16, the, the description of those false teachers. And that leads us into chapter 2, where we are today, where he says, Titus, you, however, must teach in accordance to sound doctrine. This is the characteristics of an elder, the description of the false teachers, and then he says, but you, Titus, in contrast to that, that you would teach healthy, wholesome, biblically founded teaching according to his grace and his truth. 
that people can search the scriptures and see that what he is saying is from the word of God. It is from the Bible. So the responsibility of a pastor is clear. That one of his primary responsibilities is to, as a pastor teacher, to teach the flock. If you're in a church and there is no teaching, then there is a biblical mandate that is missing. It is primary. He is to teach this book and subsequently he is feeding the flock. And the theme of sound doctrine and subsequent godliness is through this, the, the pastoral epistles. So there's specified men uh, that would be elders in 1, 6 to 9, and then the false teachers in 10 through 16. And now he turns in this chapter, chapter 2, to the conduct of the people in the church in their response to the, to the doctrine, taking up their own cross by faith and how that affects their life unto godliness. So his first focus is on the older men and then on the older women. And then it mentions the younger women and the younger men, so something for everyone. And this passage, of course, shows incredible value on those who might be considered the older men or older women in the church. We understand that the future of the church may lie with the next generation, but the current stability and strength and development of the church and the, the modeling of Christian character is, is with those that are older in the church, those who have experience, those who have walked with God. So we understand where the future lies, but the present is very strongly dependent on those who have walked with God and are among us with their, with their lives and with their faith. We see the great value and gift that we have of every single portion in the church. And you, say, you might say, well, I'm not, as, I'm not as physically able as I was in my younger years. And we say, well, we understand that. But your lives are more valuable than ever. It's not only about what you do or what you can do physically. It's about who you are. You have maturity and wisdom and experience. You have raised families. You have faced trials and troubles. You have learned through your own failures. You have discovered what it really means to receive grace and be strengthened in grace and continue even to this day. And oh, we desperately need that example. We need that encouragement. I say we as if I'm including myself in the younger. I'm sorry. I don't know where I fit between the older and the younger. But anyway, don't be distracted by that. Um... But we, I say we as the church, we desperately need that. We need your portion, your life, and your wisdom. So here's a question. What should a younger pastor, and I don't know, but what should a younger pastor teach older men? We don't have to guess. It tells us right here. Paul is telling Titus, who's probably in his 40s, What should you teach the older men? Well, that they would carry themselves as crucial senior members of the community, of the church community. We see this in verse uh, 2, that you would teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. You'll notice that these characteristics are all marks of maturity. Maturity doesn't always come with age. We're talking about spiritual maturity. Um, It doesn't necessarily come with knowledge. 
but it comes through personal experience and application. Hebrews 5.14 puts it this way, referring to those who are of spiritual maturity. It says, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I want you to notice the words, by reason of use. In other words, it's not theory, it's not Bible knowledge only, but this has been put to use in my life. There has been application, I have been living by faith, and through that experience I am growing in maturity. So it says that you would teach the older men to be temperate, Let's go through some of these words. It literally means to be sober-minded, to be clear-headed. And from that vantage point, you are then vigilant or watchful. You are careful and circumspect. You are not careless. You are moderate, is is the idea. That you don't allow yourself to be taken in too much excess. You are not distracted by foolishness, but you are steady, you are stable, you are sober-minded, you are temperate. Then it says you are to be worthy of respect. That someone who is younger in the church would look to you and there would be respect that would be, would be evoked in that relationship. I respect this person because they are worthy of my respect. The word is to be venerable or dignified or respectable. Or to be grave. To be serious about your life. It doesn't mean you can't have youthful, youthfulness about you and a sense of humor. Of course not. But with the serious things, you are serious. And you can be light-hearted, but in a moment, you can enter into the seriousness of faith and understand the most important things doesn't mean you have a furrowed brow and you are gloomy and too serious to laugh at a joke, but it means that you are are grave. Then it says self-controlled. This means to be, again, healthy in mind. It means you have a mature judgment, a proper restraint, that you are moderate in terms of your opinion and your passion. You are not impulsive or emotional, or opinionated to the hurt of others, you are sensitive, you are reasonable, you are wise, and you are discreet. Then it says, goes on, these are three Christian virtues that we often find together, uh, faith, love, and hope. He says that they would be sound in faith. What does it mean that there will be an older, godly gentleman in the church who is sound in faith? There is a persuasion and a conviction that is evident in their life. They have a healthy faith. It is not worn or mixed. The time in their lives has not caused them to wane or be weary. But perhaps their faith should be more healthy than ever in their twilight years. Caleb said, of the 40 years had passed, oh, give me that mountain. You think I wanted it before, even more so now, that these years have brought a soundness of faith in my life. I am more persuaded of the promises of God than I was in my youth. I'm more persuaded that I am loved by God than I was in my youth. I have a living faith. I am sound in faith. You know, we need that faith in our church, and we have that faith. 
It says also they are to be sound in love. This is beautiful. That there is a healthy sense and expression of agape love in this man's life. First of all, he is persuaded that he is loved by God. Through the years and through doctrine and through growing in maturity, he has a persuasion and a conviction, oh, I am loved by God. It is no, there is no question mark for a hundred miles of that question. But also that love is expressed through his life to others. He is sound in love. His love hasn't cooled off. He hasn't become hard or grouchy. I don't know why that word slipped in there. But he has love in his life. The years have enlarged his heart with love and compassion. He hasn't left his first love, but he's abiding in it. And then it says, sound in endurance, hupomone, or hope. That he, is, he has an expectation in his life. That expectation is stronger in his life now than it ever was. For through the years he is persuaded and he has been growing and now he longs and waits with a living expectation for the Lord's return for heaven for eternity. These things are more real and more potent in his life than ever before. He's not just hanging in there. He's not signed off and, and, and you know, checked out. He is very present in his heart and his mind. He is looking, he is waiting, he is longing, he is enduring. And perhaps if a younger man in the church would go and talk to that older man, it wouldn't be long before he would be encouraged because he would hear the faith and sense the love and also a living hope in that man. So teach this to the older men, Titus. Likewise, verse 3, so in the same way, in a similar way, a very close comparison, what would a young pastor teach to the older women? Well, it tells us right here, we don't have to guess. Titus, teach this to the older women, that the Titus and the elders are responsible to tell and teach the ladies, first, what they are to be, and secondly, what they are not to be. To be or not to be, that is the question. That they are to teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach that which is good. Let's go through these. Reverent in the way that they live. The word is literally to be like a priestess in the temple of God, for that is what they are, in fact, what we all are. That there is a, a reverence, a healthy sense of the presence and the purpose of God in their life. Then it says not to be slanderers. I was shocked in the moment when I looked up the Greek word for this, for it is diabolos. It's exactly the same Greek word that is translated devil, for this is one of his names. He is the slanderer. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be part of his ministry. And that's what it is. It is slandering. For the devil is an accuser, a false accuser. Avoid malicious gossip or slandering. He says, Titus, teach the older ladies not to do that in the church. And even the husbands, of course, help their wives and we help each other with our tongue and our hearts. 
James 3 tells us, even the tongue is a little member, but it boasts great things. See how a great forest a little fire kindles. So not to be slanderers or accusers, not to talk negatively behind someone's back. That is sin. And then it says not to be addicted to much wine. I think that's self-explanatory. The word there is not to be slaves or in bondage or captive to much wine. In other words, it shouldn't be a vice in my life. We have different convictions on that, and we don't enforce our convictions on one another. We live before God. Uh, We don't want to hear about it in the church. That's not the example that younger ladies need. And then it says to teach what is good. To teach what is good. But be a teacher of good things through your lifestyle and also through your words. So you see the older women affecting the younger. This is a beautiful generational investment that is taking place. In verse 4, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. This word urge is a unique word. It's only used once in the New Testament. It is to correct or instruct or to teach or to make of a sound mind. The idea is not a formal instruction as in the classroom or public teaching, but day to day in the trenches, through the relationships, through investment, teaching the younger ladies. Because the older ladies have maybe discovered some secrets, some insights about godly living, about how to relate to their husbands, their children, their neighbors, their workplace. So we're better for the younger women to learn this than with the older women who have walked that road. And then it lists seven responsibilities of the young women. The older women might urge the younger women so that they might, oh, it's right there in verse 4, that they might love their husbands and their children. Philandros, it means to be husband-loving. By the way, your own husband. Your own husband. To be husband-loving. And we might think, well, it's a bit strange, isn't it? To To teach to love, isn't love just... A given, or isn't love just a feeling that I have? Well, it certainly has to be more than that if you're gonna if you're gonna run make run the course. Uh, Someone might say, "Well, two years down the line, oh, I'm not sure if I love him now." Two years. But we understand a few years, a few kids, a few thousand nappies, the challenges that go with that. I'm just not sure I can love him anymore. Well, aside from hearing instruction and being encouraged in the faith, oh, go talk to that lady. She maybe has some wisdom to share to you, for she has been there. She has learned to love her unlovely husband. Um, Billy Graham's wife was asked, oh, I forget, they were married for 50-plus years or something, I forget, maybe more. And in an interview, someone said, all those years, did you ever think about divorce? And she said, divorce, never. Murder, yes. (laughs) There is a woman who had learned to love her husband. And of course it takes work. 
You scratch your head when you see a, a young couple, they've been married two years, and they're ready to throw in the towel. Of course, it takes work, and you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it. And we all need input and encouragement from one another. And the older men maybe can encourage the younger men, the older women, the younger women, etc. Learning to love their husband. And what does love do? Love puts another's welfare before its own interests. And the woman might say, well, equally, the husbands have to love their wives. Yes, but that's what, what's here it's being said, what the older women would teach the younger women. That's what's being said. So that the younger women would put their husband's welfare above their own self-interests. And then it says, and to love their children. And we could say again, isn't that obvious? But anyone who is parents here, we understand. Ooh, boy. Sometimes you have to learn it in midnight when you're like, oh, you know, through the night hours and the diapers. I fed them, I burnt them, I've changed them. What else is there to do? I remember we used to put Ryan in the car at two in the morning and drive him around the block just to get him to sleep. And then we would park up the car again and then, and then he would start crying. It'd just be like, and then we realized he was just hungry. He was always hungry and he still is. And no matter how much we fed him, and the book says, give this many millimeters, we're like, forget that. We're giving him as much as he wants. But we understand that maybe there are challenging times when we are raising children. And the older women and people might have some insights for us. And the younger women also, to love their husbands and their children are to learn to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Let's go through a couple of these. I'm not sure how far we'll get, but self-control. This is the same word as in 2.2 for the older men. It is to be sound of a healthy mind, sensible of a mature judgment with proper restraint, not impulsive but inwardly self-controlled. They are to be pure. Hagnos is the word, rooted to the word holy. To be chaste, clean, innocent, honest, no matter what the culture or the peer pressure may dictate to a younger person. They are to be busy at home, or to be keepers of the home is a good translation. The, The Greek word literally means producers of orderliness that no one can make a home like a woman. A man might be able to build a house, but he doesn't make a home in the same way that the woman can. And in her heart, with love for her husband and her children, she delights in doing that, according to the spirit of Proverbs 31. To be kind. To be good is another translation for that. Oh, that person is good. What do we mean by that? They care for people. They do the right thing. They have a heart. They are kind. Subject to their husbands. This is that there's a desire in her heart to support her husband in his role and in his calling. She is a woman of honor and according to God's order in the home so that no one will malign the word of God. What does that mean? So that no one can look at that woman or that relationship and speak against the scriptures because of it. For we know that the world judges religion not by its doctrine, but by its followers. 
So here to see a beautiful home and a relationship, a mutual love, submission and unity, that is a wonderful, powerful message. So we see the older women having a crucial effect in the church. Verse 6, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And that's the, the most prominent thing about the young men. There's a bit of a longer list elsewhere. But for the younger men, it kind of sits right there. Be self-controlled. And we understand that if we're older men and we look back, we understand that. To be self-controlled. Younger men are more likely to be unrestrained in their conduct. But they are to learn to be in control by the Spirit of God in their life. If you learn this in your youth, oh, you win so much. Learning to be measured and under the Word of God. Proverbs 16.32 He who rules his spirit is greater than he who takes a city. And then in verse 7 In everything set them an example by doing what is good. Timothy, teach the young men to be self-controlled and you be an example to them in everything that is good. The King James puts it this way, showing a pattern of good works. Again, Titus, probably in his 40s, would be considered an example for the young men. That everything that Titus was charging the people to do he would also be an example of it. And in your teaching, show integrity. Integrity answers the question, why do you do it? Show integrity and seriousness, a gravitas, a dignity. Again, not to be dull, but a seriousness in the most serious issues, never losing sight of the gravity of what we are saying, of what we are believing. And then lastly, we'll finish off here, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This soundness of speech, and he's saying that there is a healthy, wholesome doctrine that cannot be condemned by those who would oppose it, the false teachers and others. In other words, it's not easily criticized. Here's the open Bible. Here's the teaching. It's very clear. What is said is reasonable and biblically based from the pulpit and also in his personal life. That they would be ashamed for they have nothing to say about us. And Paul includes himself there. Not just just, uh, nothing bad to say about you, Titus, but about us. For we are in this together. We represent the same thing. It's the gospel. So I think we'll end there today. It goes on, of course, but we'll pick up that on next service. But let's close by saying this. How beautiful it is that we have different portions, different ages, different gifts in the body of Christ. How invaluable each one is. When I realize that when I come and gather with the family, it's not just about what I receive from another, but it's the portion and the gift and the wisdom that I have for another. And we would say, oh, we need each other. We, there is such a healthy um, ministry and life that we gain and gather and receive from the body of Christ. We have a wisdom and an experience and a portion and a word in season for one another. So we need each other. 
But thank you. Thank you for your lives, for your faithfulness, for drawing near, for having a word in season, for praying, for encouraging your brothers and your sisters, both old and young. Amen.